Let me invite you to uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 13, and I will read our text uh, from there in just a moment. <clears throat> Two quick things. Um, just as a follow-up to something that I said Wednesday night, if you were here Wednesday night, you heard that um, my wife's mother was uh, in uh, advanced declining health, and indeed she did die last night at 6.30. So after 12 days of of hospitalization, uh, her life came to an end last night. So I thought you at least need to know that. Um, The other thing um, is that we are, uh, we really want you to, uh, take seriously that you are the nominating committee <coughs> of um, the people who will be, be nominees for this office of elder. So these things are available all month long. Don't, don't, don't neglect that. Now, um, we go back to a series that we set aside way back in August. Um, we set it aside because of um, this, that four-part series that I did on the church and then there was communion a couple of three weeks, and then the missions conference. So we're back to this series that, that I entitled several months ago, the, the Paschal Discourse. These last hours of Jesus' life before, I mean during Passover, before he is um, betrayed, arrested, tried, and then ultimately crucified. So it's John 13, 14, 15, and 16. And we're in the the middle of chapter 13. So you follow as I read, beginning at verse 18. John chapter 13, verse 18, reads like this. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass... You may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask him who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread... He then went out immediately, and it was night. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that word endures forever. The name in American history that has come to be associated or or, uh, synonymous, actually, with the, uh, the whole idea of treason, 
and treachery and betrayal is, of course, the name of Benedict Arnold. Um, <clears throat> it's, his name is a byword. It's a, it's a synonym for the act of betrayal. If I were to call you, you're a Benedict Arnold, you would know exactly what I had just called you. Um, in, my, um, in my brief study of him of, in preparation for this sermon, I found out some things that were really rather surprising to me. One of them is that he and I share a birthday. We were both born on January the 14th. Uh, he's a few years older than I am. But, but the other things that were so, so, the one thing that was so surprising to me was that Benedict Arnold was in shipping before the war started, the Revolutionary War, and when it started, he immediately joined the, the, uh, the new army that was being led by Washington. He was with Washington at Valley Forge. He, um, he fought in numerous uh, significant battles in the Revolutionary War uh, at Fort Ticonderoga, uh, the Battle of Saratoga, to mention just a, few, a couple. He distinguished himself with the acts of bravery and intelligence and and was um, quite a patriot in those early days. In 1779, the Continental Congress met and bypassed him for a promotion in the, in the Continental Army. He blamed it on enemies that he had in the Congress and on, on some men who had um, um, uh, taken credit for his accomplishments. And as a result of being bypassed, Benedict Arnold became quite bitter and angry, and he decided in 1779 to, um, to change sides. And so he entered into some kind of secret negotiation with the British. Um, and Washington didn't know it, and Washington offered him command of the fort at West Point, which he took, and the negotiations with the British included he was going to turn that fort over to them without a fight. When, those, uh, when that scheme became known, and it, and it was found out because the American troops um, captured a British general by the name of John Andre, and he was carrying at the time on his person uh, papers that described the plot to turn over the fort at uh, West Point to British command. When Benedict Arnold heard about Andre's capture, he fled down the the Hudson River, where he was received gladly and warmly uh, on the British sloop of war by the name of the Vulture. He was uh, immediately made a brigadier general. He was given a 360-pound annual um, uh, pension and was given a lump sum of 6,000 pounds. And from there, led British forces against American troops in battles in Virginia and Connecticut. Until, of course, the war ended with Washington's um, victory at Yorktown over Cornwallis. He then fled to Canada, where from there he went to London, where he was received well, warmly by King George. Stayed there three or four years, came back to Canada, where he re-entered the shipping business. And then finally moved back to London in, in 1791, spent the last ten years of his life and died in London in 1801. There was in the room that night one just like him, but far, far worse. Judas made Benedict Arnold look like a Cub Scout. You know, as, as, I've, as I've been studying these three chapters, 
I have been surprised at the prominent role that Judas plays in, in these last few hours of Jesus' life. You know, we've already talked about Judas, Judas once. We, we saw him in verse 2 of chapter 13. And here we are talking about him again. Jesus has just said in verse 17, which I didn't read. He, read, he said in verse 17, Blessed are you who know these things and do them. And there's some, there was a man sitting in the room, Judas, who knew all those things, but he didn't have any intention of doing any of them. In fact, his intention was to do the very opposite. Jesus um, makes the statement that, um, that this whole thing was going to fulfill Scripture. Did, did you notice that? And then he quotes an Old Testament passage out of Psalm 41. Now, everybody knows what Psalm 41 is, don't you? <laughs> psalm 41 is a, is a psalm by, the, by David in which he describes an event in his life where he too was betrayed by a man by the name of Ahithophel. Remember that guy? Remember that story? Ahithophel is one of David's counselors, one of his trusted counselors, a man from whom he sought advice. And Ahithophel decided to change sides too. He went to Absalom, David's son, and, and, and plotted alongside Absalom to not only overthrow David, but to destroy him. When that plot failed, Ahithophel went out and hanged himself. Just like Judas. And there, seated in the upper room, actually, they weren't seated, they reclined at table. But there, reclining at table with Jesus in the upper room in the last few hours of his life, is a man who has 30 pieces of silver in his back pocket and has entered into secret negotiations to betray the Son of Man. You know, guys, when I thought about all that, um, it, 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 um, it begged a question. And I, and I think it probably did for the 11, the other 11 guys in the room. And the question is, wait a minute, wait a minute. didn't you, Jesus, I mean, aren't you the one that chose him to be a part of this apostolic band? Didn't you choose him? Then, then, if so, why? Well, you're told, ladies and gentlemen, in this little paragraph here, or a couple of paragraphs, you're told why he he was chosen. He was chosen, it says, verse 18, to fulfill Scripture. That is, predictions that were made by David in Psalm 41 are now coming to pass, In that, Jesus Christ has one who lifts up his heel against him. One who had enjoyed the sweetest of table fellowship with Jesus is now a betrayer. All to fulfill predictions made hundreds of years earlier where you see once again the supremacy of Scripture. Well, is that that the purpose of this passage, Jimmy? Is is that what this is all about, just uh, the supremacy of Scripture? Not at all. Guys, the, the, the real purpose behind all of this is not so much to point you to the supremacy of Scripture. What Jesus is doing here in this little portion is that he is comforting the other 11 guys. And he says three things and does one. That is, he, does, he says three things and he does one thing, all designed to to comfort these other 11 guys who are about to face something that they never dreamed would have ever occurred. 
He says three things. Let me, let me just point them out to you real quickly. Um, two of them are said in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, uh, I tell you this beforehand. I'm telling you before it happens because I know this is going to be a shock to your system. I know you're going to think, oh my gosh, Jesus has been caught off guard. No, I haven't. Um, Jesus has been fooled. No, I haven't. Jesus was tricked. No, I haven't. I'm telling you all this beforehand so that you will know. Um, and it's, a, it's an indication of his omniscience. I'm telling you before it happens because I know what happens before it happens. That's omniscience, ladies and gentlemen. But I want you to fix your eyes on the second thing that he says. It's also found in verse 19. Look at it, ladies and gentlemen. It says, because I want you to know that I am he. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I, may I be the first to inform you that that he is not in the Greek text. You know that the, Greek, that the New Testament is written in Greek. That he is not found in the Greek text. In fact, if it is found in your English uh, translations, you will notice that the word he is italicized. It's italicized because it's not in there. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to know that I am he. He's not saying that. He is saying, I want you to know that I am. Does that ring a bell for anybody? It ought to. Do you remember that story back in Exodus chapter 3 and Moses is walking on the backside of a mountain and, and um, uh, this, he notices this bush begins to burn and not only that, it begins to speak. And out of it comes a voice that says, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me ask you this. Who will I tell Pharaoh sent me uh, with this message? And out of that burning bush comes the voice that says, tell him, tell him my name is Yahweh. That's the first person singular of the, of the verb to be, Yahweh. Tell him I am sent you. When you get down there and he wants to know who sent you, just tell him Yahweh, a name that simply means I am. You fast forward into the New Testament and Jesus, this is not the first time that he's done that or done this, but he says in verse 19, I want you to know I am. Jesus deliberately claims the title, the divine title of Yahweh and says, I want you to know who you're dealing with. And you, the one who is standing in front of you right now, I am. He is claiming to be Yahweh on earth. I want you to know, he says, the one that's speaking to you, the one who is about to be betrayed, is I am. He deliberately takes the title for God and claims it as his own. The other thing that he does in verse 20 is simply, uh, uh, I'll paraphrase real quickly, the other thing that he says actually. The thing that he says in in verse 20 is, listen, I am sending you, uh, but don't worry, he won't be going with you. This betrayer, he won't be going with you. You'll be sent by me, but he won't be going. Now, those are the three things that he says. Um, 
a claim to omniscience, a claim to deity. And um, Judas won't be going with you. All of this, ladies and gentlemen, is designed to comfort people who are shook. Shook about the whole idea of betrayal. And then he turns to do something. It starts in verse 21 with a bombshell. In verse 21, he says, one of you will betray me. A a bomb goes off in the upper room, ladies and gentlemen, and Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they all look around and they say, yeah, 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 we thought that was going to happen because we knew Judas, he was a rotten egg before the, you know, from the very first moment I laid eyes on him, I knew he was a rotten egg. No, ladies and gentlemen, nobody turns to Judas. Nobody suspects Judas. They, the, the one thing that they do ask, which is recorded by Matthew's account, is Lord, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? Am I the one that you're talking about betraying you? And then he does something. Really, starting in verse 23, going through verse 29. He does this whole piece of bread thing. I love the the King James. The King James word for the piece of bread is a sop. (laughs) What a word. Sop. He got a sop. We don't use that word anymore. All it is is a piece of bread. But he, he, uh, Peter, who, by the way, is not seated next to Jesus. He's no pope of the apostolic band. But Peter says to John, John, ask him who it is. And Jesus says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dip this sop, this piece of bread. I'm going to dip it into, into some wine. I'm going to hand it to him. And he's the betrayer. And so he does it. He gives it to Judas. Now, guys, I want you to watch this. Look at how the text unfolds. Having done that, he turns to Judas and he says, this thing that you're going to do, I want you to get going. I want you to do it quickly. I want you to... um, uh, this, This horrible betrayal that you have in mind... I want you to go now. Guys, it is a command. It is a command to one who is, who has been chosen to be a part of the 12 so that he can fulfill scripture. So that he, that Jesus can accomplish his redemptive ends. Do you want to know, ladies and gentlemen, do you want to know why it is that God or that Jesus chose Judas to be a part of the 12? Well, you see, Judas is going to play a very significant role. He's going to play a significant role in betrayal. Guys, the the point of all that is that this is the way that God uses evil. He's always in charge of it. He's always saying evil will accomplish purposes that I have set. You know, guys, that's a, that's a huge chunk to swallow that God is not the author of evil, but that he uses evil to accomplish his ends. Yes, you got it. That's what Jesus is up to, folks. He's chosen a betrayer. 
Because he's going to fulfill scripture because God is going to use evil to promote redemption. That's how he always uses evil. He didn't offer it. But he uses it to accomplish his ends. But you know, guys, as you you read this story, you can't help but be struck with the kind of contrasts that are being described by John as he recounts this. You've got John... You got John the beloved. You got Judas the devil. Same room. You got John the lover. You got Judas the betrayer, the Ahithophel, the Benedict Arnold. You got John who goes on to write the book of Revelation. You got Judas who goes out to hang himself. You see, outwardly, they, they seem to be equally trusted. Equally valued. They sit at the same table. They eat the same food. They, they go through the same exercises. They're both communicants. They, both sets of feet are washed. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, one of them. They look a whole lot alike. One of them is a betrayer. And guys, here's the lesson. I I probably hardly have to even say it, but the lesson is, among the true, the false will always be found. Just like here at Grace of Anne. Among the true, the false the false are here. It's a rather sobering thought, isn't it? Seated around you someplace is the false. You know, one so close, so privileged, so advantaged. He's not merely influenced by the devil. He's not just deceived by the devil. He is entered by the devil. And so Jesus turns to someone who is now possessed by the devil. And he says, knowing his own timetable for death, go ahead, get on with it. So you see, again, Jesus using evil to accomplish his ends. You've got, you've got to see, ladies and gentlemen, that in this ugly scene, Jesus is in command. It's a scene that is dominated by Satan, a Satan who must obey. Evil always obeys, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is in charge. Satan can only operate between, among, in the midst of those parameters set for him by God, which is what you see in the book of Job. And as Judas is leaving the room, Neither Jesus nor John, who now knows who Judas, what Judas is up to, neither of them try to stop him. The rest of the guys are still reeling. They're spinning over the whole idea that somebody's going to betray him. And they think, oh, he's going to go do this. He's going to do this. They still don't know. 
But Jesus has gone, has taken this step with the piece of bread so that they, they might know who the betrayer really is. And, and one other thing, I, I didn't want to skip this. There's two little details that John gives us in verse 30 um, that, that might be throwaways. I don't think they are. Uh, I think they add to the whole pathos of the scene. Notice he says, having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately. Of course he did. Jesus told him in verse 27 that you need to go. And so go he must. Because evil must obey the commands of God. Because evil is accomplishing the ends of God. The evil that exists in this country, in this world, is accomplishing the ends and the purposes of God. So he says, go, and Judas goes immediately. And then this final little sentence in verse 30, John says, and it was night. (laughs) You know, guys, you think I'm dramatic. Guys, this is high drama. Why did John include those four little words? This is not just a time note here. It's Judas leaving to do his dastardly deed in the, in the cover of darkness. He's got to be shrouded in darkness because sin operates better in the dark. Truth lives in the light. Sin loves darkness. You know, guys, the, the Bible has got a couple of statements in, in, in that regard. Like uh, Luke 22, where Jesus talks about the power, the power of darkness. My favorite, though, is in John 3, where Jesus says, this is the, this is the condemnation that, that the light has come into the world, but men love darkness because their deeds are evil. Evil functions better under the cover of darkness. You know, guys, Judas didn't sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He sold himself. And I fear that some of you have sold yourselves as well. Some some addiction that now controls you. The message of the gospel, guys, the message of the gospel is that there's nothing that should control us except the Lord God Almighty himself. You know that porn thing that you struggle with so? That porn thing that robs you of all kind of marital freedoms? It's it's the darkness into which you've entered. You know that prescription drug thing that that torments a few of you and controls you. It's the darkness that you've entered. And and guys, it doesn't need to be that way. Um, Part of the solution of of getting out of that darkness is that you've got to walk into the light. And and I know that's rather vague, and I would love to talk to you more about it. We're going to have to do it another time. But the message of the gospel is that none of that ought to control you. None of that has the right to control you. We as people who belong to the Savior, we walk in light. We don't look for the darkness. Now, let me close with just four applications. Guys, 
to be like, if you want to be like Jesus Christ, and so many of you do, conform to his image, that means that you too will also be tempted, will also be betrayed. Betrayal is a part of the process of discipleship. If you're going to be like him, you're going to taste betrayal as well. It's a part of of entering into the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Betrayal is a part of the discipleship process. Secondly, just how close can one get to Jesus without being converted? Well, apparently pretty close. I can tell you this much. Church attendance doesn't prove a thing. Church membership does not equal salvation. Okay, okay, Jimmy, then what does? I could speak the rest of the afternoon about that, ladies and gentlemen, but let me, let me, try, to make it as sim- let me try to make it simple. We sing a lot of wonderful hymns around here, a lot of wonderful songs. Here, here's just a couple. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Do you know that? Do you know that to be true? Have you found that all of that other ground that we used to pursue to try and prop us up, it won't do it because it's sinking sand. I looked into that other ground and it won't support me, but I have found solid ground in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? Do you know that all the rest is much? The only solid ground is Christ Jesus. How about this one? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Do you know that? Do you know that when you come to Christ, you come with nothing? You don't come with your baptism. You don't come with your confirmation. You don't come with your good works. You don't come with your money. You don't come with your performance. You come with a palm that's open so that you can clutch a cross Do you know that? Can you sing that? On Christ the solid rock I stand. Nothing in my hand I bring. Do you know that? Then I would suggest if you do, you are real. The third you must see the very real probability of the false dwelling amidst the true. You know, John says this in another place. He says it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He's talking about the antichrists, plural, with a little a. And he says, they came out from us. That is, the point of origin for the antichrist was the church. Whoa. Fourth and final. Guys, no no hypocrisy ever escapes detection. But but the way that you can discover it in yourself, here's, here's one way. All of us, all of us should be asking, Lord, Is it I? Is it I, Lord? 
And when you ask that, then you can be assured that it is not you. Guys, in that scene, Judas doesn't ask, is it I? He knows he's the betrayer. The only one who wonders whether that they could possibly do something this catastrophically evil are the ones for whom he is so valued. The only ones who really who really worry themselves about whether their soul is safe is the one whose soul is safe. The only ones who who so long not to betray him are the ones who so highly value him. The only ones who ask, Lord, is it I, are the ones whose soul are safe. What Jesus did in this passage is is designed to comfort us, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, that his words and his actions would comfort God's people. Our Father, would you, um, would you assure the true that they are real? But would you, um, if you have found or if we have the faults among us, would you open their eyes to see that they are standing, that, that they are living hypocritically, that they are living in hypocrisy, and would you expose them now? Would you cause them to see the great beauty that is found in Christ Jesus? Father, might we all be able to sing, nothing in our hands are we bringing. We simply are here to cling to the, to the finished work of Christ's cross. Thank you for opening our eyes, O oh God. Our greatest, our greatest hatred would be to disappoint you. Our greatest love is to bring you pleasure. For those for whom that is true, they, we, are the ones that you have bought with the price of Christ's finished work. We, um, we pray, of course, this morning in the name of Christ Jesus.